Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio. We like speaking to interesting characters and people at this time of the night. And uh, as I've told you before, I never know who it is until the night because I prefer it to be that way. Uh, because then it excites me as much as it excites you. Anyway, tonight is no different. Dr. Leslie Dobson is a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist in California. She's over 20 years of, psycho- of uh, psychological experience. She has worked in maximum security settings with individuals who are committed violent felonies and were found to have a severe mental illness. And she joins me now to chat about her work and what kinds of people she deals with on a regular basis and hopefully teaches how to recognize the dangerous traits within human beings. Leslie, good evening to you. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. What a wonderful career, by the way. It really intrigues me. Criminality and why people commit crimes really, really intrigues me. What what kind of got you into that career, by the way? Oh, so many reasons. I think the biggest reason was that everyone told me I couldn't do it. <laughs> Maybe I have a little bit of a criminal in me. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're a bit of a rebellion. No, they tell me I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm going to do it. That's it. Very much. I walked to the, well, I drove to the nearest jail and I said, you're going to train me. I've decided I want to learn all about the people inside. (laughs) (laughs) And did you have an interest when you were younger? You know, the way people kind of have an interest in serial killers and criminology. And did you have an interest in that? I did. I've always had an interest in it. And I've always had the capacity to hear the stories, to understand it, to really get into the nitty gritty of it. And not allow it to bother me or alter my dreams or hurt my sleep. And so I could also be that friend that was there for others who were going through horrible times. Mm. And I was okay. I could hold their story and be there with them and help them. And to me, that was always an indication that I might have been made for this field, that I'm empathic enough, but cold enough to do it. And is it tough to sit there in front of somebody? And I'm sure you've spoken to many criminals throughout your life, people who have committed the most heinous crimes. But is it tough to sit there, you know, and talk to those individuals and be empathetic in some way or try to be understanding? Is that a tough thing to do when you know they've just murdered their mother or sister or brother or whatever it happens to be? It used to be a lot more difficult, but over time I've tried to embrace that they are humans and I can connect to some part of their humanity, even if it's an external behavior. Uh, You know, I once sat with a cannibal talking about how he had eaten people uh, and his nose was running and I still offered him a tissue. I still felt like, oh, that's, you don't want your nose to run while you're talking to a doctor. So if I can connect to any piece of them, they open up to me and we can build on that and hopefully protect the community from future violence. And when you say you were speaking to a cannibal who ate people, he obviously murdered them and ate them. Um, Why did you find out, you know, I mean, how do you figure out what goes through the mind of somebody, you know, who would rather eat a human being than head down to the local KFC? I mean, what goes through their mind? Well, you know, honestly, I've only worked with two cannibals in my career. The rest who had access to body parts, didn't choose to eat them. Uh, But the two in particular I think of, they wanted to, in a psychotic way, they wanted to become the person. And they felt like if they ate the person, 
then they would have internalized that person in some way. They would become them or they would never have to say goodbye to them. And it was a very psychotic, uh, mm. out of reality understanding. And they were unmedicated and not in treatment at the time that they committed their offenses. That's bizarre, isn't it? That somebody want, would want somebody else to be part of them so much. That, yeah, because I remember years ago, I had a friend of mine and he was so much in love with his girlfriend. He turned around and he said, I'd love if we could get surgically sewed together. <laughs> I said, right. <laughs> you, you need to speak to somebody. But the other thing is, I remember years ago watching a movie uh, with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And Richard Pryor was interviewed after the movie. The movie was called Stir Crazy. And they filmed it in a penitentiary. And he said one of the most interesting things about it was a guy called Bubba. And he was in for killing, I think it was six people in his family. And he asked Bubba why he killed six people in his family. And Bubba's answer was, they were all home. So, so what? <laughs> when, you, when you meet somebody who has committed multiple murders, or what drives them? Do you have to be insane to commit murder? Oh, definitely not. I think that that's a huge question. And in California, it's called something different. But uh, to understand insanity in, in legal cases is something I've, I've done a lot in my career. So mm. we want to know, did you understand that what you were doing was wrong at the time of the crime? And did you understand the possible consequences? If you did, then you were not insane. You still just chose to kill someone. But it's, it's not normal rationing thinking to walk into your house with a shotgun and kill your whole family. So for that moment, I mean, do, do people become insane just for that moment in time? Because surely when you're walking around with a shotgun killing everybody, you're thinking to yourself, you don't really care what's happening or where you're going afterwards. Or you, maybe you don't understand what you're doing is wrong. I don't know. But maybe then afterwards you do. You, you kind of regret it and you're remorseful or whatever. So are people momentarily insane for that moment that they commit that act? Because you'd have to be, because we're humans. We don't want to kill each other. I would put it in two different buckets. I think people enjoy the stimulation of murder, and they do not care about the consequences. They are driven by the passion of their hatred or their desire to harm others. And then there are people who are caught up in that that rage that is psychotic and taking them out of reality and they will feel remorse later. You know, I had a client once who uh, he murdered his family members and he put them in the freezer and days later he went to get food and he found them and he did not remember doing it all. Oh God. So he felt great remorse, but he required treatment for the rest of his life because of the intensity of the psychosis he could fall into. And would he have been one of your most disturbing clients or what was the most, well, apart from the cannibals, that would be reasonably disturbing. What's the most disturbing client you've ever had? Uh, are there bounds on what I can say on, on the radio no. show? No, no, <laughs> we're, we're grand. It's late night radio. You can say what you want. Okay. You know, I honestly think the most disturbing was when my clients have taken their own eyeballs out in front of me. In front uh, of And you. that's because it wasn't, it wasn't just a story. I actually had to be a part of the crime against themselves. And it, it, it went a deeper layer into me, of course, to see them actually do the act. And what, they gouged them out with their hands? Yes, they, um, they believed that because they had visual hallucinations that if they took their eyes out, they wouldn't see, see the, the scary things anymore. And, and it didn't work. They still did. Of course, because they're seeing it in their mind, obviously. And are there... T- but having to... Mm. 
Oh, I'm sorry. Having to to go hands-on and to protect the person and they, you know, they're trying to drag their face against the wall and make sure they finish their act. And it, it is horrific when it's actually in front of you. So hearing the stories after once I'm in the jails or the prisons, I think I... I have a lot less trauma than what I would imagine our police do when they show up to these events or the victims. Mm. Because you're kind of more used to seeing it. I, I couldn't imagine. I'd say that something, if I saw something like that, would live with me for the rest of my life because you can't unsee something like that. But I couldn't imagine. Right. What's like. I mean... Ironically, is, yes. Yeah. You can't unsee it. <laughs> no. Is a, oh, yes, sir, there is an irony in that. Sorry, I didn't realise my own irony there. But, <laughs> but are all these murders, are these hardened criminals, is it all linked? Because they talk about being linked to their childhood. You know, they talk about people like Ted Bundy and people like that who, you know, used to be cruel to animals or whatever it was. I, I mean, is it all linked to their childhood? Is there is there always a link back to childhood? Not all the time. I We like to say that trauma leads to people becoming psychopathic. I have seen histories of people who at five years old, they were psychopathic. They were killing animals. They, they were interested in pain in others and they progressed into full-blown psychopaths who killed people. Mm. Um, but I've also seen people who were raised in very bad environments and all they knew to survive was that they had to commit crimes and hurt people and they never learned empathy. So those people have been responsive to treatment where they start to learn empathy. They start to be citizens that we respect. Mm -hmm. But then there's that other group that because of brain structures, because of their complete inability to experience the full range of emotions, that I really don't find hope. The only hope to stop their violence is through consequences. So maybe it's prison, maybe it's an ankle monitor if they're a sex offender. But research shows us that with those individuals, consequences curbs the violence. And do, I mean, there's anything we can look out for on people that we shouldn't, people are listening now terrified at home. Is there anything we can look out for? I mean, do, do narcissists, for example, move on then to be psychopaths at some point in their life? Do most, are, you know, are, do they have narcissistic behavior at a younger age? So they're very different things, right? So a narcissist can be a narcissist throughout their life and they can never progress. They can actually learn when they are being narcissistic. That has way more of a tie to childhood and how they learn to deal with their emotions growing up. Uh, but to be a psychopath, you do have to have narcissism. You also have to have more than narcissism. You have to enjoy hurting others. You have to have that impulsivity and that antisocial nature to you. Mm -hmm. So a psychopath is bigger and a narcissist is a part of that. If we added a narcissist with an antisocial person, then we get what we call a psychopath. And with narcissists, you also talk about, you know, how to identify energy vampires. That was uh, your first book, by the way, The Friend Cleanse. How to identify energy yeah. vampires and set boundaries and balance your glass of life. Um, and that's so it's going to be published in January. We'll talk about that again in a second. But in relation to energy vampires, are they generally narcissists? People who basically suck the life out of you. They're so, they kind of suck all the positivity out of your life. You know, I think a lot of energy vampires are very good at gaslighting and gaslighting comes with that narcissism. So these are people who sit on top of a very thin eggshell and they will do anything so that eggshell does not crack and they do not fall into the depths of their emotions and their life. 
And so they will project onto you. They will blame you for everything. They will exploit your emotions so that they do not have to feel any pain. And that is a very toxic person. Mm. And how common, by the way, are psychopaths in, in the population? Is it like one in five, one in ten? I mean, how many, you know, what, what sort of percentage of people would be psychopathic? I don't know the actual percentage in the population right now, but I would say very low. Yeah. But we are, our research is very skewed because we can research people when we have them captive, right? We can't go uh, do a psychopath test on Donald Trump right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Donald is not too bad. He's just a bit wild. <laughs> but... You know, would he, would he sit down and do it and let us show the world? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he could probably do a test on Biden. It's like, you know what I mean? You've got a Hobson's <laughs> choice there in America at the moment. Which one do you pick? You know what I mean? <laughs> the one that doesn't remember very much or the one that remembers too much. You know what I mean? Um, so getting... <laughs> right, getting, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. So, I mean, you, you mentioned a few minutes ago we talked about insanity. And I'm assuming people can, can, can become insane at any point in their life, or can they? I think so. I, I think between the ages of 18 and 25, we are the most vulnerable. But I have seen people become insane at any age because mm. of substances, extreme stress, or a genetic predisposition that was triggered by something particularly tra- traumatic. Yeah. Uh, some people may have an underlying psychosis that they ride with for years, and it just starts to come through as they have a medical illness, as mm. they have something happen to their brain. So I don't think we're always safe, but there are a lot of precursors and family genetics that we can account for to look out for. Uh, But I think every person should try and reduce stress and trauma because that's the key to when our personalities and our mental health takes a dive. I mean, at the moment, you're an expert in psychological evaluations uh, to determine truth. So you're like a human lie detector. Um, so I, it mentions here through a variety of assessment measures, she determines the truthfulness of claims regarding emotional distress, especially sexual abuse allegations, which have become a lot more common in society, both the allegations and the sexual abuse. Um, so how do you decipher or how do you tell? Because people are very believable, aren't they? Because people, I remember I had a friend many years ago and he was a compulsive liar. But I got convinced at one stage that he was actually believing his own lies. Do you understand what I'm saying? So if somebody is yeah. making a false allegation, let's say, for example, I mean, sometimes they'll actually convince themselves because they'll re-remember an event as being the truth. Definitely. And we have that problem. We can falsify our memories and color them wrongly. So I use a variety of assessment measures, psychological assessment measures. They've been normed on thousands and thousands of people. And I look for a consistency of their personality, their emotions, their answers over a series of tests, over a series of time. And then I look at every single ounce of information I can get from their entire life to look at the whole picture. And if it doesn't, if if something is not obvious, then that significantly stands out to me. Oh, okay. Things should make sense to us. Every test I give you should be similar if you're trying to impress me or if you're trying to look more sick or if you are confused by certain answers and not confused by others, but your reading level is 12th grade. So we look at all of these different dynamics to make sure that somebody is, 
giving a valid portrayal of their experience. So you'd be an expert, by the way, as a boss, if somebody rang in sick and said, I'm <laughs> on a Monday morning and said, I can't come in today. I'm not feeling well. And they put on, why do people always put on that voice? You know, the voice they put on when they're ringing their boss. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> I've seen people die in hospital and they don't sound like that. <laughs> so people put on that voice. So you'd be the expert. So are you like a human lie detector? Uh, I, you know, I think I'm an annoying friend. <laughs> <laughs> Are you psychoanalyzing people when you're out on dinner or something like that? Is that what you do? <laughs> I really try not to. I mean, having wine really helps me turn that off. But uh, <laughs> it's very obvious at times. And I have to pull back and realize that, you know, I, I can only be around people who accept me. And if I see their their truthfulness, uh then why aren't they okay being true around me? Are you psychoanalyzing me right now? No, honestly, I, I think <laughs> the accent throws me off. <laughs> I mean, the other thing as well, in your part... I have a gauge. I, go ahead. I think your IQ is relatively high, yes? We can go. We can do that at least. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thanks very much. I'll, I'll accept that as a compliment. <laughs> I mean, in your personal life, you know, knowing all you know about the dark side of humans... Um, you know, is that kind of difficult in your personal life then? Because you treat everybody, I suppose, I don't know if you're you know, married or in, in relationship or dating or whatever it is, but, you know, that you kind of overanalyze things or you oversee things sometimes that the rest of us just let slide. A hundred percent. I am married to a forensic psychologist. All right, there's a Perry uh, in it, so imagine what dinner's like in that house. <laughs> Are you eating your beef? Yes, I'm eating it. <laughs> we have entire conversations with just looking at each other. But... <laughs> so, so, so you're married to a psychologist, but, go on, but do you overanalyze each other then? <laughs> yes, constantly. We love watching television and not speaking to each other. <laughs> I mean, that that must be, but, you must have great conversations together. You never guess what happened to me today at the office. Somebody ripped their eyeballs out in the middle of the conversation. <laughs> I mean, what, I mean, the conversations must be un, unbelievable that you two have. It, it's quite nice because I don't have to overly explain what led to the eyeball incident. He just gets it. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> so I'll say, I'll say this happened, and he'll say, oh, of course that happened. Okay, like, who cleaned up the blood? <laughs> <laughs> Not why did he do it. <laughs> it's it's who cleaned up, and did you get any on your good blouse that I just bought you for your birthday? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay, so who's the most interesting? Well, don't tell me, obviously, names, but what was the most interesting and intriguing case that you've ever had? Oh, I'd have to say I, I did. I worked one year uh, outside of the White House, and it was very interesting working with the Secret Service and crimes against individuals in the White House. Oh, okay. And that's all yeah. you're, and that's so all you're allowed to tell us. <laughs> or, or, you, or you'll <laughs> cease to exist. <laughs> but very interesting to see how people can become extremely delusional and infatuated by celebrities or politicians and 100% believe that they mean something to this person, that they're married to them, that they're pregnant with their child, and they will do anything to get to them. And the Secret Service will follow them for the rest of their lives because of the high-profile victims. 
Uh, And so watching that system play out and knowing that so many people are under surveillance that we do not realize it, it, it brings a safety and a security to me that I was never aware of. So what, like Marion Seattle is under this illusion that she's pregnant for Donald Trump or Joe Biden or wherever it happens to be. And so the Secret Service then will follow her because she's clearly not pregnant for them and they'll follow her. She's just psychotic. Yes, they will. They will follow her. They will follow all parts of her online, you know, anything that they can access to protect the, the important people. And it's, you know, people are always going to try and bring down her risk uh, or anyone's risk of potentially causing a crime. Mm. But if these people aren't accessible for treatment, we have to keep our eyes on them. And it's amazing how the government really in America comes together in that way. I know we look at America as a complete shit show, but (laughs) it is actually quite secure. And living in D.C., I learned a great deal about that. Uh, that's all probably covered under the Patriot Act, I imagine, because they have the, <laughs> the the power to do all of these things and basically watch your life and watch everything you do. I suppose, to back down to basics in relationships, I mean, the things, I suppose, the warning signs that people can look out for, you know, if they're with somebody a short period of time, um, the worst thing you can ever do is end up living with a narcissist um, because that can be so damaging um, to your self-confidence mm-hmm. and to you as a person, isn't it? So, I mean, for people who don't really understand what a narcissist is or some of our listeners that may not understand, what are narcissistic behaviors? What behaviors should you look out for? I think there are some very key ones, that, and they come up a lot in therapy with my clients. Uh, I think gaslighting is, is the number one uh, behavior where a narcissist will... Uh, blame you for something, you will respond emotionally, and then they will belittle you or cut you down for having a relevant emotional response. And the problem with that is over time, it breaks down your confidence. And they start to control your emotions, and you start to question the reality of your emotions. That's huge. Um, I think there's an element of triangulation I see in narcissism a lot, where they're always bringing in a third party to prove their point. And that third party may be imaginary. It may be a threat of someone somewhere, but they're always trying to triangulate you. So it's not just you and them in the relationship. Mm -hmm. They have more power with them, with that other person. Okay. Um, And who would that other person be like? Somebody like your ex-wife or something like that. Oh, yeah, your ex-wife told me that you did those kind of things all the time, that that kind of stuff. So bringing in that, that threat all the time. Yes, or it could be, I know somebody who saw you do this, but I'm not going to tell you who it is. And then you say, wait, did I? Did I drink too much one night? Did I actually do that? I can't remember. And you start to to believe it. Yeah, you start to believe their lies. Hmm. And can you cure a narcissist? I mean, and I know there are people out there listening who may be living with a narcissist and they know the person's narcissistic. Um, some Some are worse than others. Can you cure them? I wouldn't say the word cure, but I would use the word treat. And I would say that, you know, a narcissistic person typically has been, they were raised in an environment where they were invalidated and belittled themselves. So they learned that they could not be in a healthy, vulnerable relationship with others. Mm -hmm. Vulnerability is threat and threat to a narcissist is death, the narcissistic wound. Mm -hmm. So how do you treat that? 
you have to start to gain insight. You have to teach them that they can start to show up emotionally. They can add little by little vulnerability and they will be safe. But it's going to take years. It takes a lot of effort and it takes a great deal of support with family, friends, and therapy, consistent therapy. But some narcissists have backups as well. They have enablers, you know, who will help them as well. Yes, especially narcissistic men and their mothers. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) I know a few of them. Yeah, (laughs) narcissistic men and their mothers. So their mothers will back them up no matter what they do wrong. Their mothers will think, that's my boy. He wouldn't do anything wrong. It's clearly you. Yes, so the mothers have, and maybe other parents or loved ones, but they have been sucked into this domestic violence cycle where they are manipulated, they are abused by the individual. And right when they feel like they want to get away from them, they get love bombed by the narcissistic person. And all they want is for that love and that connection. So they come back in, they have this honeymoon period. The narcissist then builds up that energy to abuse again, and the cycle continues. And I see it in parents all the time because they don't want to believe that their child is struggling or even their adult child is struggling. And then this child as well then will isolate. I mean, I've seen it with elder abuse, for example, where you've got, you know, a child of a parent. When I say a child, you know, a 50-year-old with an older parent trying to trying to get their, their will or whatever it is. And essentially what they will do is um, they will not only, you know, love bomb them, as you rightly said there a few minutes ago, but they will also isolate them from other people um, so that they can't tell anybody or they they don't, nobody, well, nobody actually believes them anymore because they, they think it's a great relationship they're having. So they isolate the person. Is that is that normal behavior to isolate somebody? Yes, it's very normal for a narcissistic person to have one individual that they target with their pathology. Mm. And I can't, on countless occasions, I have clients say, everyone sees him as so normal or sees her as so normal and healthy. And I see this side that no one else sees and I don't understand it. And I think it's often because the narcissistic person has picked the soft, vulnerable person they can manipulate and control and bring into that cycle and be stuck with them. You know what? I've gone over time. I know I'm going to be in trouble, but I because I, I didn't realize the time it was. <laughs> the conversation has been so interesting. We could go on forever. Jane, my producer, is waving at me. What are you waving at me, Jane? Are you telling me I can have another 10 minutes? I can't hear what you're saying, unfortunately. Um, oh, she wants me to read out a question on the air. Which one? Which one, Jane? Uh, okay, so, uh, I'm looking at it. She, she wants to know, are you aware of a book called 48 Laws of Power? Yes, I have not read it. I think I have it in my library. Okay, because obviously she has a great interest in that book. And uh, the other one is, uh, do you have any tips? Oh, we did that one already. Um, and she wants to know, what, is it? what are the differences between so, uh, sociopaths, uh, psychopaths and narcissists? Is, is there a major difference? Sociopath, I would say, is an outdated term because they used to be social deviants. I think a psychopath is a term we use in psychology because we have an actual assessment measure to determine psychopathic characteristics and danger. And what was the other one? 
Um, it was sociopath, psychopaths, and narcissists. But I think we covered the narcissists anyway. And the final question uh, is: we, She wants to know, yeah. do you have any tips? And this is Jane. Is this a personal one for you here? Okay. Do you have any <laughs> tips for getting people to do what you want? That's called hypnotism, Jane, or blackmail. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any tips for getting people to do what you want? In other words, how do you win over people? I think my best tip is to wear very dark, good sunglasses and to have patience and never speak before the other person speaks because you can tolerate as much anxiety as you want. They can't. So especially in a narcissistic relationship, they want you to speak first. So if you maintain that power, you then maintain the control. Well, look, your book is out in January and the best of luck with it, by the way, January the 1st, 2024. It's called, be, I'm going to be buying this book because just your conversation alone interests me. Uh, it's called The Friend Cleanse, How to Identify Energy Vampires, Set Boundaries and Balance uh, Your Glass of Life. And it'll be published on January the yes. 1st, 2024. I'm assuming it'll be available in all the usual places, Amazon and everywhere else. Yes. It's been wonderful talking to you. We're going to get you on again because it's just such an interesting conversation and you're such an interesting person and I can only imagine what your household is like with you and your, psych- your husband who's also a psychologist as well. Like, it's, it's a really interesting dinner. All right. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Leslie Dobson. I appreciate you talking to us this evening. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> there you go. What an interesting conversation. Somebody, somebody texted in when I asked her about the, the guy who... Pulled his eyes out. He said, I wasn't expecting that. No, I, I wasn't expecting that either. Can I say, could you imagine that was your job? So sitting down talking to somebody and saying, so can you tell me why you did it? I don't know. Now, now, real people, real opinions. Nighttime talk with Niall Boylan. Ireland's classic hits radio.